In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, and with you to your people. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If, if I should have, I hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me to your, for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your, sisters -in -law, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Thank you. Uh, thank you for reading Ruth 1 for us. Uh, if you know, if you're familiar with Ruth, my guess is you're pretty excited that we were going to get into Ruth. If you're unfamiliar with Ruth, you are in for a treat. And you might look at this book and go, that's yeah, just four chapters, right? It's just barely 85 verses. How could this short story be so good? Well, this is what one commentator wrote. He said, the book of Ruth is an intricately woven, magnificently crafted tale 
It is the work of a person standing in the midstream of Israelite life and thought, a person wishing to communicate to his audience things very close to the heart of the Old Testament. As well as being an artist, he's also a teacher, teaching with what in many instances is the most effective medium one can choose, a short story. I stand in awe of this author. He was a genius. And at first glance, if, if you've read through the story maybe once this week even, you might wonder, well, how, how does this fit into Scripture? Uh, but the author places this story right in, in the middle of the storyline of God's people by framing both the, the beginning, the very beginning of Ruth and the very end of Ruth within the larger context, the larger storyline of the Old Testament. And we're told right away in verse 1 that this story takes place in the days when the judges ruled. And that's why in our English Bibles, uh, Ruth is placed immediately after the book of Judges. Uh, and the book of Judges gives us plenty of backstory for the setting of Ruth. This is a narrative. So we, we think about setting, we think about plot, we think about characters. The time of the Judges comes after uh, Israel's great God-fearing leader, Joshua has passed away. And if you've read in the Judges, you probably remember the, the cycle that is there. That God's people would drift away from covenant faithfulness to God. God would let them deal with the consequences of their choices. So God would remove his hand of blessing. Instead, they would, they would face his discipline um, for disobedience and unfaithfulness. It would get bad. The surrounding nations would uh, oppress them. They would cry out to God. God would send a judge, and they would follow God for a while, and the cycle would start again. Um, uh, but but the, the cycle wasn't exactly the same every time. The, the judges, as you go through the book of Judges, get worse and worse. Um, the, the character of them lessens as we get through each judge. So instead of a cycle, it's more like water swirling down a toilet in this downward trend. And the book of Judges ends with this. It says, uh, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this is the time of Ruth. And already without really knowing anything about Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, we know a lot about this time for God's people and for this family that is in the midst of this time. The main participants in the story, uh, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, remind us that God works in the everyday events of life, that he works in tragedy, in faithfulness, and in obedience and generosity. Through tragedy, Naomi will leave her homeland with her husband and her two sons, only to see all three of them die, leaving her without a male relative to care for her in a patriarchal society. How devastating that would be. However, God was not caught off guard by these tragedies. Her tragedy is woven into the story of God bringing a king to Israel. We see God working through faithfulness. Ruth is a foreigner who breaks the social norms to honor her mother-in-law. And God honors her integrity and her diligence. And she is woven into the story of God's salvation for his people. We see God working through obedience and generosity. Boaz is a man of high, high character. He observes the Torah, the law. He's generous to the poor. He's, he, he's ready. He does not back down 
uh, from family responsibilities, even at a great cost to him. And God uses this man of integrity to save a widow's family. And he joins the line that leads to the Messiah. So here's a, here's a truth statement for the book of Ruth. I've had a hard time making a truth statement just for today in chapter one, but here's a truth statement that we'll track with each week and, and perhaps for the rest of the chapters, I'll, I'll have truth statements just for that chapter. But for the whole book, here's what we have. God works in the everyday events of life in order to save a remnant of his covenant people from extinction through a kinsman redeemer. I'll leave that up for a little while there. But we will see God at work and these average people in their everyday events. And he's going to save a remnant of his covenant people, not just, not just the remnant of this family, but, but the larger, larger picture will be the remnant of God's people. He'll save them through a kinsman redeemer. These are normal people facing difficulties like you and I face in life, right? The loss of loved ones, um, the, the lack of financial security, financial resources. They move, they have to move to a new place. They face family responsibilities. And what we see is God at work in the day-to-day -day details of these normal people weaving his great story of redemption. And I hope that throughout this book, we see how much our day-to-day -day living matters, that, that it is a part of God's bigger plan to save and gathers people unto himself. So let's jump into verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, right? We knew that this took place in the days of the judges, and now we know that there's a famine. And God's people knew that, that, that the famine was God's hand because of their disobedience. Leviticus 26, they were told, if you walk in my commandments, then I will give the rains in their season. The land will yield its increase. They knew that this famine wasn't chance. The people lived like there was no king. God was not their king. And there was a famine because of it. They understood who was sovereign over everything, including the rain, including the lack of crops. And one truth that this book makes us confront is God ordaining hard circumstances in life, painful circumstances. And we probably don't like thinking of, uh, of pain or hardship or suffering coming from the hand of God. Even though it wasn't that long ago that we were in First and Second Samuel, we, we saw it there. We just saw it in uh, Isaiah. We saw God's discipline uh, against his people when they disobeyed and how he used that ultimately to save them. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And later in our service, we'll spend some time praying for our brothers and sisters around the world that right now are facing real persecution. And for the last 2,000 years, countless brothers and sisters have suffered, even to the point of death, for Jesus. And in their suffering, they embrace God's control over everything as their comfort and their hope. Telling them that God is not in control would not be comforting. Uh, one pastor wrote it this way. He said, giving Satan control or ascribing pain to chance is neither helpful nor true. When circumstances of life are threatening to crush us, we need to know, we need to remember that God reigns over everything. Let's continue in verse 1. It says, And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malhon and Chilion. 
They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Mahlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So we find out about Elimelech. He's from Bethlehem, and, and with New Testament eyes, we, we probably think, especially as we approach Advent here, of the one who would be born in Bethlehem. Elimelech's name means my God is king, and there's a lot of irony here. It's ironic that, that that's his name in a time when Israel had no king. Certainly the people weren't looking to God as their king, and, and you could argue that neither was Elimelech, as he's leaving God's land to, to go look for something else. Elimelech is married to Naomi. They have these two sons, Malhan and Chilion. The famine is bad. It's so bad that they, they decide, no, we're going to leave. We're, we're going to leave God's people. Right? Bethlehem, where they, where they lived, it means house of bread. So they're leaving this house of bread that God provides. Now, moving to a foreign land is certainly a big decision. It's a tough decision. We can all put ourselves into the shoes of this struggling family, desperate to find opportunity, looking around the home that they know, and I'm guessing love, struggling to see good. And they hear about another place and they wonder if that would provide a better life for their family. Moving to Moab means they would be foreigners at the mercy of the Moabite people. The refugees, they're taking a huge risk to survive. But they do move at some point. They move to Moab. And then Elimelech dies. Yeah, tragedy. Right now he's left home, struggling to survive with her two sons. Now her husband is dead, but at least she has his boy, or her boys. And Naomi has her two sons in this foreign land, and they each marry a Moabite woman. God's people were not supposed to marry foreign wives, and this wasn't some ethnic purity, like racist decree from God. No, this is because God knew that, that they would be tempted to follow the foreign gods, to follow these fake gods, that their worship would be false. And we see this happen so often throughout the Old Testament. This was about worshiping the true God. Naomi's daughter-in-laws were Orpah and Ruth, and they lived in the land of Moab altogether about 10 years. And in this 10 years, her two sons had zero kids. 10 years without kids, 10 years without grandkids is a long time. Trying to have kids, longing for kids without success, dealing with infertility is heart-wrenching. It's a trial that is filled with much pain and many questions, certainly Naomi must have been asking herself, what is wrong? How bad can life get? And then both of her sons die. So Naomi's in a foreign land. She's with her daughters-in-law. No husband, no sons, no grandkids. She's nowhere near home. And this sets the stage for our story. It's dark. If, if this were any uh, one in our church, I wonder what we would do. We, we might sit in silence with what is left of this family. There'd be waves of, of tears as, as we sit and try and love and minister 
to the remnant of this family. Perhaps we would fast and pray. Maybe we would invite other churches to fast and pray with us for this family today. There would no doubt be a, a GoFundMe started right away, but that wasn't an option then. It is bleak. Who would have thought that in arguably maybe the worst time of Israel's history, in the time of the judges, that, that God was at work in the horrible tragedies of a family to prepare the way for the greatest king of Israel. This short story ought to be a reminder to us that, that God's work is often hidden. He's at work at all times and certainly during the worst of times. And I wonder right now if there's anyone here that you look at the circumstances of, of Orpah and, and Ruth and, and maybe you don't have the same tragedies, but you feel similar. You know what darkness feels like. You relate to hopelessness. You get why in just a few verses, Naomi wants her name to be changed to bitter. Maybe you yourself have tried to fight off that bitterness for a time, but finally you just gave in and you can feel bitterness coursing through your veins. I want to remind you, God is always at work for the future of his people. This is why God's people always have hope. God is at work preparing a way for his people through Christ that so often we cannot see. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And Naomi knew that God was the cause of famine. She heard that God had visited the fields, that he had given the people food. He was the cause of the famine. He'd be the cause of the harvest. And we will see that while Naomi is bitter, right, while she believes that God's hand is against her, she does not think that God isn't real, right? She, she does not doubt that God is real. And that's where I see a lot of people go today when they face tragedy. Right? If this horrible thing happens or that horrible thing happens, then the good God that I learned about in my church, he must not be real. Naomi doesn't go there, and neither should we. Naomi hears that God has visited the people that he's given them food. She thinks, you know, aren't I one of his people? Was she thinking, well, why wasn't she there with God's people? Why was she sitting here in this foreign land where everything just reminded her of her loss and her pain? If there was abundance back home, shouldn't she return? So they set out to go back to where Naomi belonged, verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And this word kindly or, or kindness is a really important word in the book of Ruth, but also in scripture. The word kessed uh, speaks of God's covenant loyalty to his people. And as we get more and more into this story, we're going to see the covenant faithfulness of his people and of God. Verse 9 it says, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them. They lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. And Naomi is, she's beat up. She's worn down. This refugee who came to Moab with a husband and two sons now is a widow. She's childless in a patriarchal society. She's with her two daughters-in-law. She's bitter, as, as you and I probably would be in the same circumstances. But Orpah and Ruth, 
they must see something in her that we cannot at this point. And we don't know what they saw. Right? Maybe it was her strength. Maybe, maybe it was how she continued to love her family even after her husband died. Maybe it was the faith that she had ex- displayed to, to Orpah and Ruth over the last decade in Yahweh. We don't know, but something has these two bonded to their tired, battered mother-in-law, and they don't want to leave her. And even though Naomi's going home, she had low expectations. She was returning home to where she had heard that God had visited the people, that he'd given them food, but she, she has such low expectations. Verse 11, she says, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Man, that last phrase there, is she right? Is God's hand against her? In one way, she is right. God is sovereign over all things, right? The, the famine, the death of her loved ones. God reigns over these, right? This is a lesson that, that we need to learn from this book, that God reigns. He rules over everything from, from world powers to the most mundane events and everyday circumstances in your workplace, your school, or your neighborhood. God reigns over all human affairs. Maybe you remember the story of Joseph, He certainly knew that God reigned over all things. Joseph could have said the same words as Naomi just did, that that God's hand has gone out against me. His brother sold him into slavery. He would never see his mother again. He was falsely accused by his boss's wife and then put into prison. He could have said God's hand is against me, but instead he says this in Genesis 50-20. As for you, and he's talking to his brothers who sold him into slavery, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So in a sense, Naomi's right, but in another sense, she's very wrong. God was over the famine. God is over death. God's also over birth. She couldn't see that God was working to save not just the remnant of her family, but, but the remnant of God's people because he is the one who reigns over all things. I think it's very fascinating that Orpah and Ruth wanted to follow Naomi in this time. There are plenty of daughter-in-laws that might love a reason not to be around their mother-in-law, but it's not so here. They loved her. They're committed to her even though she's embittered. They're willing to leave their people, their home, to return with Naomi. And I think that says something about Naomi. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? My guess is, women in the room today, if your husband were to die, you wouldn't go back to your mother-in-law and say, I need, uh, I need another son. <laughs> like, hook me up. You, you wouldn't say that. That is strange to us. That's so foreign to us. It's not what we're used to. It's not how we think. Deuteronomy 25 
helps us understand this custom, and there's more to it, but I just want to zoom in to, to the most applicable part for this, that, that when a husband dies without an heir, his brother or nearest relative was to marry the widow in order to preserve the brother's name and carry on the family line. So that's why she talks like this, and we're going to see later in the story how God is going to, or how God has already put in place what is needed. But Naomi looks around, she sees no hope. She tells him, I have nothing for you. I can't give you what you need. If you come with me, you're signing up for a life of pain, maybe pain that's worse than my own pain. And now what's interesting here is Naomi's apparently forgetting something or rather someone that's critical. In the next chapter, we're introduced to Boaz, and it's clear that Naomi knows that Boaz is a relative, a relative that could fulfill this role of carrying on her dead son's name. He could be the kinsman redeemer for her family. Here's why I bring that up, and, and maybe you've already connected the dots as you've read through Ruth. But Naomi is so surrounded by tragedy. She's so stuck in her own dark circumstances, stuck in her bitterness that she can't see hope. Right? She, she can't even recognize a visible possibility of God's provision right in front of her. And we're just like Naomi. We get so wrapped up. We get so entrenched in our difficulties, in the trials, in, in the dark circumstances. We get this, this tunnel vision and, and we miss sometimes even ways that, that God has made visible in front of us of his provision. Right? And that doesn't even include all the hidden ways that God is at work. But, but I tell you that's that in case, in case you're living in just dark times right now in your own life, in your own family, right? know that our human tendency is to have this blindness towards what God is doing, towards what God is preparing, to the way that God has already decided to deliver, to redeem. We need to cling to God even when our eyes cannot see anything good or anything hopeful. Verse 14 so then they lifted up their voices and wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Right? Naomi explained why it makes no sense to return with her. They all weep at what has happened and where they find themselves, and, and Orpah finally concedes. And, and we don't blame her. We get it. Orpah, just go home. It makes sense. No one doubts your love for your dead husband or, or his family. Cut your losses, go home, see what you can make of the rest of your days. And Orpah makes that choice, as many of us would, maybe all of us. But Ruth clung to her. And we're going to see a faithfulness throughout this book. But this is, this is the first just incredible picture that we get here. We'll see it in others. A faithfulness that, that's a reflection of the faithfulness of God. God is steadfastly faithful to his covenant people. God doesn't break his faithfulness to his people even when his people break their faithfulness to him. So Ruth, instead of leaving, which none of us would have batted an eye at, she stays. She clings to her mother-in-law. Verse 15, she said, as Naomi, she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you 
or to return from following you food. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her sister, she said, no more. Ruth isn't leaving Naomi. She says, stop trying to talk me out of staying with you. I'm going where you're going. I'm following you. If you stay somewhere, that's where I'm staying. Not only that, but your people are going to be my people. And then she says, your God, my God. This is a remarkable statement. And I wish that, that, that the author gave us more verses here to understand how does she come to trust in Yahweh? Was it the 10 years of, of being married to her husband? Did, did he tell the stories of the patriarchs? Did, did he tell her about the exodus? Did, did she hear the stories in the wilderness? Or, or maybe it was Naomi. Right? That's my hunch. But the author doesn't tell us. So it doesn't really matter for the story. But, but it's interesting that this woman has come not just to be willing to move with her mother-in-law, and join her people, but she's going to worship her God. At some point, Ruth came to trust in the God of Israel, even though she's seen and felt the experiences that have led to Naomi's bitterness. She then goes on to say, where you die, I will die. Right? Even after you die, I'm not leaving you. No one expects that. When a couple gets married and they share their vows. I've never heard vows go that far. My wife, Lindsay, loves me, right? I love her. If she outlives me, I don't expect her to live in the same area just because I died there. And don't get me wrong, she's gonna miss me more than words can describe. So she'll probably get like a tasteful tattoo to remember me by. But if she wants to move wherever she wants, it's good. We didn't promise each other where you die, I will die. But Ruth says, death is the only thing that will part me from you. She's leaving her own family, land, people. It means going to this new foreign land, new people, new customs, new language. She loves her mother-in-law. She's committed to her, even though Naomi really can't give her anything. By making this commitment to Naomi, she's accepting the grim picture that that she, and remember, she's young. Ruth is is a young woman. She'll remain a widow and childless her entire life because if she married someone outside of the family, she's breaking the vow that she just swore to Naomi. So this is a a shocking commitment to the family of her dead husband, and, and Naomi has nothing to say. She's speechless. Ruth is determined. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this, the, is this Naomi? I wonder what that walk was like back into town, right? He, the author says the, the whole town was stirred at the sight of Naomi, at the sight of her daughter-in-law, the Moabite. Word, no doubt, spread quickly. It had been about 10 years a hard 10 years. My guess is that that 10 years aged Naomi so that she looked like it had been maybe way more than 10 years. Those who knew Naomi 10 years earlier asked one another, is that her? Is that Naomi? Is she really back? She left when it was hard and God's hand is no longer against the people 
in the land. And now she returns. I'm sure someone said, I heard her husband died. And someone else responded, I heard, I heard both of her sons died. Well, I heard they married Moabite women, but neither of them were able to have children. I'm not surprised that God closed their wombs. Naomi saw the stairs. She heard the whispers. Naomi's name means sweet or pleasant, but she didn't feel sweet. Any remnant of sweetness had vanished over the last decade. Verse 20, she says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She says, I went away full, the Lord's brought me back empty. And while we can understand that statement, it's not fully true. She's coming back to a parcel of land that is hers through her dead husband. Not only does she have the land, she has a daughter-in-law that is shockingly loyal to her. But I wonder what was it like for Ruth to hear those words come out of Naomi's mouth? Naomi says she's She's come back empty. She's just equated Ruth's worth to nothing or maybe even less than nothing. A liability, another mouth to feed, a body to clothe. There's a a critical lesson in Ruth, and we need to learn this, that, that God's people can trust in God's providence. And it can be difficult to see God's providence in our lives. There are times where from our vantage point, it looks like God is dealing bitterly with us, whether it's consequences of our sin or just the difficulties of life. Christians, we know, are not promised an easy life. Jesus said to his followers, you will face tribulation. Life is hard, and there are so many times when we cannot see what God is doing. It's a big mystery to us. But do we trust that God is working there have been several times over the past year and a half where I've put our, our youngest to bed and she'll look at me and she'll say, Daddy, what is God doing with the sickness? And my answer uh, never feels profound. It, it doesn't feel that fatherly or, or pastoral. Uh, I tell her, I don't know, sweetie, but we know that God is working. He is always working. Psalm thirty-four, nineteen says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We're going to see God's providence in this story. But so often God's providence is really hard to see when you're in the middle of the story. Sometimes you can't see it until it's right in front of you. Other times you don't realize it until the provision has already come to fruition, but God provides for his people. Naomi sees that God's hand is at work and it seems it looks like discipline in her life. Perhaps she sees this as judgment um, against sin in her life. The author doesn't really explain if she's right there. As we get through and see God save this family through a kinsman redeemer, which is, is God at work, again, saving not just the remnant of this family, but, but ultimately the family of Israel, the remnant of God's people through a greater kinsman redeemer. When we see all that, we recognize how incredible this story is. Now, now if Naomi is right, and all this is because of sin in the family, the decisions that they've made, it, it, it makes the story even that much more incredible to me, that in spite of, of their sin, God makes a way 
to save them, that God provides for them and what they could not provide for themselves. If they, were, if they were being disciplined for leaving the land, for marrying off their boys to Moabite women, but God in his grace would redeem this family, that he would bring this Moabite who, who turned in faith to him. And now she's a part of the lineage that we'll see in chapter four that, that not only leads to the, the great Israelite king, but leads to the Messiah. This is a story of amazing grace. She says, the Lord brought me back in, in verse 21. And she says, brought me back empty. And, and yes, right. She's wrong about the empty piece. We understand why she says that. But, but she sees that it's the Lord that, that has brought her back. She sees God's hand in bringing her back, not just to the land, but to the Lord. And I hope that everyone understands this, that there's, a, there's always room for those who will return to God. That God is ready to take back any rebel who will come back to him. He's waiting He's waiting like, like the picture that we see in the story of the prodigal son. The father's waiting. He's looking. He's waiting for you to return. And we see this story throughout Scripture of people leaving and then returning. Just recently in Isaiah, we saw God's people going away into exile and God bringing them back. And really, this is the story of humanity. Going away from God and his great plan to bring his people back to him, back home where they were always intended to be, where they would dwell with him, he would be their God, and they would be his people. And maybe for you it's been a, a decade like Naomi, maybe even longer. Or perhaps it hasn't been that long at all, but, but any amount of time leaving God is too long. Come back today. Why wouldn't you? Right? Can't you see that, that it's, it's God? God's the one bringing you back to him. Come to him today. In chapter one of Ruth, Naomi doesn't seem to know that God is working his good purposes. And this is what God does for his people. What he's doing will be for their good. And remember, this is in the days of the judges, right? It is a dark, dark time for God's people and yet God is going to work in the everyday events, the tragic events of, of this family to save not just the remnant of this one little family, but ultimately God is going to save the remnant of his covenant people. And the chapter ends foreshadowing the good work that God will do, the work that he is doing for his good purposes and the good of his people. Verse 22 says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Good is coming. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have given us your word. I thank you for the gem that this short story is. Lord, and I pray for all of us that we would have hearts that are open, that we would have ears ready to hear. God, I pray that, that as a body, we wouldn't just think about this book and read this book today, but throughout the week, Lord, that, that we would just be, we, we'd be saturated in, in this story of, uh, of your good work in the, in the lives of these everyday people, how you're moving, you're working to save. Jesus, we love you, Lord. And I pray that, that this time and every time that we gathered, it would be worship unto you, Lord, as we hear your word, as we pray with one another, as we sing to you, as we fellowship with one another. God, would, would we be worshipers of the one true God of Yahweh? Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.